Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pope Science. Okay, this is Super Pop Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Um, we have a very special guest on our show today, a parallel to my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry. We have Claire Marshall, writer of books, doer of business. That's right. That's, that's me. you. And where I are you? Things. Where are you right now? I am sitting in the office of my new house in Calgary. We've brought you here today to talk about something that... Well, I thought I was going to talk about something specific with you, but then something happened today that was uh, different than normal. Into the studio today came a third-year architecture student who was coming for some um, career mentorship advice. I don't know advice is the wrong word. More like, well, how would you categorize that, Justin? Hmm. Yeah, not she wanted permission. Career permission. So, so wait, can I set, can I help set this up? Yeah. Uh, did they just wander into the seventh floor studio that you have? They just found their way up to the top. Um, our studio is much like a lobster trap that it's easy to find your way into it, but then hard to escape. So she was probably there looking for something else. No, Samantha Biko had arranged for this student. Well. The faculty had reached out to me and I said, organize it with Sam. And then Sam organized this person to come and have this meeting. So it was not a straight path. And that was what our conversation was about. How the path to a creative life is not a straight one. And so I would like us to direct our conversation with you along those same lines. Now we have a project that we're working on with you. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, I hope. And sure. we have some projects in general that we can talk about but what I'd like to start with warm up with for the two of you if you don't mind is in let's say 30 seconds or less sum up your entire school experience and the path that brought you to where you're sitting now just okay so school experience plus work experience I guess so, so. basically our whole lives yeah, in 30 seconds, go. Oh boy, okay. So I grew up in rural Nova Scotia. I graduated from Duncan McMillan High School. I went to the University of King's College for journalism. I got a combined honors in journalism and psychology. Then I went to Humber College in Toronto where I got a publishing certificate. From there, I started freelancing in publishing, uh, working for not only individual clients, but also a lot of different uh, and kind of larger uh, companies uh, and started doing websites and stuff and then I started publishing my own books so that's in a very like 30 seconds or less uh, my education and experience to this point perfect just wow go okay be uh, better than that <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I attended pilot mound uh, high school um, graduated in 2004 wanted to be an artist uh, so I applied for fine arts and graphic design Turns out graph design came in first, so I started the ball rolling on that. Um, just trained as a graph designer. Uh, didn't like it at first, started to really, really enjoy it by the end. Took the advanced third year diploma, and I really found my style in that third year. Worked as a graph designer for, I think, two years after that, and then got picked up by a video game company because my illustration had kind of caught up to my design skill set, and they were both 
something that could be used by a bigger company. Um, worked in video games for a while and then started doing conventions on the side and conventions quickly snowballed into this whole other uh, revenue stream and kind of a, a catalyst for my professional illustration career. Uh, so three years ago I left uh, the video game company and started chasing artwork full time as a company. And that leads me to now, here? Right now? Here? here. Perfect. All right. I guess I should do that, too. Okay. Okay. Um, go. Go. So I grew up in St. Germain, Manitoba, just outside of Winnipeg. I went to Minnetonka School and then on to Glenlong Collegiate. I went on to university despite my own protestations. I didn't think it was a right fit for me. Um, I was summarily... Uh, kicked out of university a few years later because I was attending third and fourth year classes um, with special permission from the faculty that did not actually exist instead of going to my first and second year classes. So that was summed up as academic dishonesty and I was told that I could never again attend a post-secondary um, system anywhere in Manitoba. And they gave what? me a letter to I that effect. I did not know that. Yeah, no. so then after that, I went to BC for a little while, had a good adventure. Uh, living on a ski hill, went up to a few kilometers inside the Arctic Circle in a $300 car, not to be recommended. Came back and took an entrepreneurship program, realized that uh, I did want to open my own business, took an entrepreneurship program at Red River, um, graduated in the top 2 or 3% of that, uh, bought into a comic store, opened a movie distribution company, uh, started a store that sold comics, books, and movies, realized once I met the woman of my dreams that I could be a good spouse or a good entrepreneur, but not both at the same time. Went back to school, um, did my, yeah, how did I go back, you ask? That's a story for another day. But I got a degree in uh, education from the same university that told me that I would never be able to come back. Um, did my undergrad in, my three-year undergrad in two years, because um, turns out school's not that hard and that when you're motivated and then went into education did 10 years of education uh and every year uh that i was in education i also put out a book or graphic novel along the way until it built up enough that i could step sideways onto this as my full-time career which i've done for the last three years well that was longer than 30 seconds yes yeah i'm sorry uh dan will edit that down <laughs> That's the only thing? Yeah, everyone really likes that part. My students in particular really liked when I would tell them that I got kicked out of university and told never to come back. And they're like, well, how are you standing? Don't you need a degree to be here? And I would say, no, no, I actually just came in one day and uh, the substitute hadn't shown up. And so I just took over. There used to be a time when you didn't need a degree to be a teacher. You could just walk in I know. And be a teacher. In those halcyon days. Hey, who do you think you are anyway? Answer me or I destroy you! It is not a straight path that any of us took to get here. But wait, I thought that's what school sets you up for, is the straight path. No, <laughs> that's a lie. <laughs> that's a lie. Justin, is that a lie? Sometimes. 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 Most times. Well, okay. So I think it's a dream that has been fed to like my generation in particular, uh, we were told that, you know, get good grades, you get to go to the university of your choice, and then you get to have the job of your choice. 
But like, especially if, if you're a creative entrepreneur, that's not really like, that's just not the case. And also it's just not the case, I think in general, like in just today's climate. Um, I was told, uh, well, okay, so my parents, or my mom in specific, she was like, maybe you should go into journalism because you like writing. And Hold I was on, like, I just want to well, pause that for our listeners because I was told going to architecture because you like drawing and you were told, Justin, craft design because you like illustrating. Yeah. So we all were fed that parallel line. Right. Well, we weren't and fed I, that. I think, that was just a it, push in like, you know, a productive, like hopefully everything will turn out direction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think your parents want the best life for you too. So they're going to recommend the career path that like makes the most sense uh, and hopefully gets you the best job. Um, so my mom said, well, why don't you go to journalism? You can try it out. And if you don't like it, you can just get like a regular arts degree or whatever. Um, so I tried journalism and I stuck with it um, mostly because uh, another line that was fed to me at university was, um, if you get a journalism degree, it's basically a trade. So you can get a job not only in journalism, but in communications and like all that, which is not untrue. In the thriving world of journalism. Yes. Yeah, so, so in 2008, in my second year of university, um, it was in Halifax. So there were two papers. Um, that was when the recession hit in the States, and one of the papers in Halifax happened to also shut down. And that was when this, like, cloud of fear came over the class, and it was like, n there's no jobs. There's no jobs in journalism. If you came here looking for a job, well, think again, because guess what? <laughs> there are no jobs. <laughs> well, they and when I was in education, they were also saying the same thing. They're saying there's so many more graduates now than there has ever been before. Good luck. There are no jobs. Nobody's yeah. retiring. Everyone's sticking it that out. That same conversation was happening. Like, is that just does that just happen universally in your last year of education? Whatever you're getting educated on, people are going to say there's no jobs. So you I made think, the wrong choice. Okay. So my uh, armchair psychology about this is that. Uh, the great thing about the lie of post-secondary education is it's a lie that you don't find out the truth about until many years later. And it's emperor's new clothes scenario where you're so far along in the parade that you don't want to be the one to point it out. So everyone just is like, yay, we're at school and everything's going to be fine and this is why we pay our tuition and hooray. And then you go into the job market and you realize that nothing you did at school matters more than your portfolio and nothing that is in your portfolio matters more than your ability to have a good job interview. I, uh, and I actually, um, at, at the end of my second year, I thought about leaving university to start my own business. Cause that was around the time when I was starting to research publishing and like really get into researching the business of publishing. And, uh, like I even printed off paperwork, like to register the business and I had done all this research and I went to my parents and I was like, so I'm thinking about uh, taking a year off because also all of my friends, they were, you know, planning a five-year uh, undergrad instead of the four years, like they were kind of in that direction. And so I was like, it's fine. It's fine if I don't finish in four years. And they were like, 
no, you should get a degree. And I was like, I guess. And you know what? I am glad that I stayed in school because if I had started Fairy Ink Press then, it would like it. I wouldn't even know half the things that I do now because I went to a publishing school instead and combined my research with actual practical knowledge and learned like, hey, it's it's hard. It's hard to be in this business and got like practical experience. And so I am actually really glad that I stayed in school for the uh, for the degree. We've covered this before on the podcast, I think, but Justin made a really great point at another time saying that, you know, in this town he was from, and, you know, frankly, we're all in Canada. So in all the towns that we are from, hockey is presented as this amazing thing that everyone should participate in and put in all this time and energy and money into. But the likelihood of succeeding as a professional hockey player is less likely than getting a regular job as a full-time writer or rock star or rock star, right? Like it's, you can be a, you could definitely be a rock star easier than you can be a NHL player. Yet Mm -hmm. our entire culture is like, do this. Everyone should do this. And somehow we are okay with the one, but not the other. We didn't have hockey really uh, in my town. I was trying to think of like a comparison sport. You maybe shouldn't name the town again or a rival town will come and burn it down. That's sort of like a thing. It happens. It happens. No. Right? (laughs) Rival towns are so far away. Remember the town before Pilot Mound? Now they call it Burning Hill. That's that space. It's just this scorched hill. (laughs) They didn't play hockey there either. So, so <laughs> she's like, I have nothing to say. <laughs> she's not from a hockey town. I'm not from a hockey town. I told you, I there's no hockey where I live. Well, there you. I think there is a rink there now, but it's not really for hockey. Um, the biggest sport that actually like got students involved because let me remind you, I grew up in a very very rural town where my high school was seven to twelve, and it was like less than two hundred people. <gasps> Let's play. Who's so, the smallest town? How many people in your high school? Uh, graduating uh, the high school? I don't know. There's like, well, I grew up on a farm. The closest town was around, yeah, 200 to 250. And then I went to the next town over, which was 700 people Ooh, to go to school. A and thriving metropolis. with another town to actually make enough people for the high school. Oh, see, I was close enough to Winnipeg that I just bust in to the city. City Mouse over here. Yeah, there was a school I could have (laughs) gone to, um, but the average population of the school at any given time was 30 students from grades 5 to, uh, no, grades 4 to grade 8, something like that. There'd be 30 students total, and my parents, who were both educators, um, knew that those teachers were doing their best, but that, you know, sometimes some great cross-pollinization works if there's more kids. So I arranged for my bees to attack him. I had a bit of a like a self-realization a while ago. I think like coming from a small town, coming into the city for graph design, I assumed everybody had gotten some kind of leg up on their illustrative and design uh, training. And I was behind because I grew up without resources that they had. And so I think like right off the bat, I was dead set on like proving myself and trying harder and, you know, like catching up. 
Clara's and, nodding vehemently. We can. <laughs> she's in. She's far away, but we can see her through our Skype connection. So she's <laughs> nodding vigorously. So by the time that I'd, I'd put in all this work to catch up, like I was, I had learned a lot of things that these other kids hadn't. I think it was just that I had put everybody up on a pedestal, and I was trying to get there too. And by the time I got there, I realized like, oh, I probably didn't need to try that hard, but I'm really glad I did. <laughs> Is that how you, did you feel like you needed to overachieve, Claire? Yes, uh, except that I think that like absolutely I, I needed to try way harder because they did have courses and resources that we didn't have. So one example, uh, when I went to university in the journalism program specifically, um, at least half of that first year class had already taken journalism in high school. And we didn't even have a school paper at my school. Like I remember a school paper for one year when I was in grade seven and then it petered out because it, it all depends on teacher interests, like what teacher can actually run the program. And a lot of the teachers, they come in from town, they come from far away. They, they don't have the time to stay after school in our little town, our little tiny village and run a newspaper program. So in a lot of, and that's, that's not the only, like there are a lot of ways that I felt very uh, inferior to my other classmates, even though I was top of my class in like Sheet Harbor, like that's, it was like middle of the road for like everybody else. Everybody else was like up here in terms of education. That's how I felt. Um, just because we didn't have access and we didn't really even have internet until I was like 13. So just a lot of ways I felt very, um, uh, just not as far along. How did it all shake out in, in the end though? Yeah. Like by the time you, but by the time you were finished everything, because you went in with that kind of overachiever attitude, um, do you feel like you were further ahead by the time you were done the course? Um, I think that I was better at writing, maybe. There you go. Uh, I think in in that respect, I was on par. And I think that I'm just very good at putting my nose to the grindstone and getting through. Um, the thing with journalism, it's not like it's it's not like you take a test and you know the thing. It's kind of like art, right? You you write pieces and you put them out and they create a discussion. So it's like way it's like also very subjective. So I I think I still I still did well in the program. It's not kind of like art, it's art. It's exactly yeah. an art. A good piece of journalism, right? Pulls you in and is evocative as any painting in a gallery can be painting with words yeah and I think I also I I did know in the later part of the program that I I wouldn't be a journalist and so I had to focus on developing skills that would just help me be a better writer and entrepreneur and so journalism taught me to write to a deadline it taught me to just power through no matter what like in my last year I think there were days when I was eating one meal a day because we were doing television production and we we were taught we were treated like real journalists we were kind of just thrown out and been like okay find your stories and we'd go and we'd find our stories and we'd bring them back and we edit them and the teachers would be there and they would guide us but like there wasn't a lot of hand holding in the respect of like you know you just had to go do it and then you would learn from your mistakes it actually sounds amazing yeah 
But I have a question. Yeah. You said at the beginning of that, you had realized you wouldn't be or couldn't be a journalist. Can you tell us about that realization? What was that? Um, well, part of it had to do with everybody saying there's no jobs. The other part of it is I didn't want to be a journalist. Um, the only journalist that I could see myself as was like a long form um, magazine journalist where I'm going deep on like one story. But by the time I got to my third and fourth year, I realized magazines are kind of on their way out. And I, I did like the online journalism. I liked the designing of, um, you know, the newspaper and the websites and all that. But I just, I couldn't deal with the lifestyle, too. Just being always on, like, we would hear stories of journalists who they would get calls in the middle of the night if you're on, you know, the police beat or whatever, and you'd have to go to a crime scene and interview people for that. And if you were working as a journalist, usually the bottom rungs, like the entry level stuff is that, it's that, basically. You're just always on, you're always fishing for that story. And I'm like, I don't think I can do that. And I don't think I want to do that. So so retrospect is always a clear lens. I'm looking now at you saying that you wanted to be a writer, your parents and you kind of found a middle ground and said, okay, journalism is writing, but in the end... Everything about journalism that was actually journalism wasn't a good fit for you anyway. And you knew that all along. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but, but like doing the program did help me come out of my shell because I didn't know. And I, I, I think, too, that doing the program then would be different from me doing it now. I think I would get more out of it now that I'm a more confident person. I would have less of an issue being like, okay, I have to call this person I don't know and ask them this very hard question about their life and I'm a stranger. Uh, I would have less of a problem doing that now than when I was 19 and I had really less of a context for what the world is because I went from very small town to Halifax and just like the world and I, I didn't know. I didn't know what the world was. I was 18, 17, 18. And, and now having lived in the world and had more experience, like, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's very difficult to just make that, that kind of initial jump and expect to have any kind of success with it. So that could have been just part of it as well. And I think that, that you know, and the little details are different, but you're explanation of the experience I would almost say is a universal experience like every person that lands like you just summed that up so well I think we just land in that mess and yeah. are told like find a life mm -hmm. and you're too young to know what that should be so do we have to fail at a career before we can become writers or artists is that is that a prerequisite uh, do we have to fail at something first I think that Failing is learning. You have to fail to learn. So I think you have to have a lot of different experiences to be a writer. Um, so I think that that's important. But I don't think you have to necessarily fail at a career. There isn't a single aspect of ship operations that's not under his control. If you were proven to be malfunctioning, I wouldn't see how he'd have any choice but disconnection. So we've been talking about 
the idea that you make the path by walking it essentially mm -hmm. right and that it's not yeah. a straight path you just have to put one experience in front of the other and then you look backwards and in retrospect you have a life yeah right are there things that you can say were true at all stages that would be useful to a person who is now where we all were starting university or starting post-secondary or maybe they can't afford university and they're just in the job market and they're saying you know all i want to do is write and make up stuff but i have all these realities what are some okay. things that have always been true no matter of your economic situation i think one of the things we've kind of been talking about um when you're starting out it feels like you should know yeah there should everybody tells you there's a straight line and this is what's at the end of that line and that's what you should be doing and it never really turns out that way but as young a young person you think like if i don't know exactly where that line is going like I shouldn't, I shouldn't try any of these other lines. I should just be going towards whatever that is. You don't know what it is. Um, so I think, especially starting out, just moving forward, not necessarily towards anything in particular, but just making advancements in either your education or portfolio or, or what, whatever it is, as long as you're working away, so then that line's going to kind of find you. Do you think the lie of the straight line, let's yeah. call it that, is a necessary one? That we have to tell people, yes, there is a clear path. Maybe that's Follow it, it yeah. just to get them started on the journey. Do you think that? I think, okay, so I think we're talking about a couple different things here. Um, first, I want to say, I think in terms of qualities that you have at various stages of your life, um, I think that being independently minded was a thing that really helped me because I wasn't really, a f like, I'm kind of an anxious person and I was always in high school the person who was very quiet and but I was like I excelled academically um, but I wasn't afraid to question the teacher if I was sure that they were wrong and I wanted to think critically about material so there was that um, I also excelled in an environment where like I I didn't need a teacher to tell me to do this like I would just kind of do my work. Um, so there's that. And I think the third thing is I wasn't, I was afraid of a lot of things, but I wasn't afraid of leaving my small town. Like I wanted to, I wanted to leave. And I knew that there were opportunities waiting for me outside. Um, if I just had to be willing to get out there and live in a different place than the one that I grew up in, because a lot of people that I grew up with, they didn't leave. Um, but I mean, then that's their choice. But I just felt like I had to I had to get out of there to even get that experience to be a better writer. Mm. I was scared to leave. You were scared to leave? I was scared to leave. But you went, you left. Okay, I so left. we have two. We have Claire, <laughs> intrepid Claire, off into the world, who's identified independence, being observant, critical thinking, work ethic, and experience. Being I'm going to blame important. my parents on this one, actually. Okay. Because I'm from a small <laughs> town, and we came into the city maybe twice a year for like back to school shopping and like one kind of event. And it was always a stressful endeavor because dad hated driving in the city. They were always <laughs> lost. They were never sure where to park. And it was just like everybody was, was super high stress levels. So that's what I associated the big city with was uh -oh. stressful times. 
So I knew that I was going to come here for school, but I always figured, okay, I'm just going to like put in my time, do the, do the course and then get back. Just escape back to the <laughs> safety escape this of the traffic hills. and parking right? and scary Ooh. big city. Oh man. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. Cause we would come into the city. So the city for us would be Halifax, Dartmouth. Um, and it was an hour and a half away, but we would go like once a week because we were in fiddle lessons or we were in dance lessons or we were in what have you lessons and you know we wanted to be there and our mom you know made that sacrifice driving hour and a half each way once a week wow. so that we could have that and like that was also a really important part of my development because like without that musical training like that made me very confident in front of speaking in front of people performing in front of people like I've messed up on stage before but it's fine I didn't die so it's that's also a learning experience but uh but yeah so I didn't I didn't associate the city as a stressful place I I it was a place of opportunity it was a place that I couldn't be all the time um, I didn't necessarily want to live there, but it was a place where things were happening and I should at least be near there. So you were afraid of it, <laughs> Justin, and you were drawn to it, but you both ended up in it. I was going to, we shouldn't discount this um, public speaking piece. No. Uh, people list among the worst fears on like worldwide databases all over, um, you know, next to a world war that having to speak in public is like right up there in the top three fears that everybody has. I really think that's scary. It's just a practice thing. There's like one in a hundred people who just naturally good at public speaking, but everybody else, like I, I was terrified of it. I was terrible at it, but then I had to do it right. A dozen times. And before I knew it, I was like, I could speak to a gymnasium full of like high school kids and I wasn't, worried about it yeah and there's no tougher crowd than a gymnasium yeah so I, it was kids. just a yeah. i think it's i really think it's just a practice thing like you're terrified yeah. of it because you never have to do it right yeah. well i like public speaking too but you're okay. that one in a hundred people maybe yeah maybe but yeah. uh i see other people just completely crippled by that so when we're talking about like being able to get into a room like in our jobs in all of our jobs at a certain point you have to be in a room in front of a bunch of people whose opinions may or may not affect you Right. And you have to be able to just say your piece without being nervous about it. And all of us, I think, benefited from that piece of training. Uh, I also in in high school, I think one of the things that I realized early, too, was that I needed to do something even though I was afraid of it. Um, Like just no matter what, just do it and then it would be done and you would feel better afterwards. And so one of the things that I did was public speaking uh, competitions in French. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, and so I did that, I think. Are you still fluent in uh, French? In, hmm? Are you still fluent in French? No. So I was never fluent. So in our school, we didn't have French immersion. We had, uh, it was French and we had social studies and that was it. So it, it's a called uh, extended core. Uh, but so there's a special category for each level of, French that you had in the competition so I was in the like extended core section um but yeah I, I signed up for the competition and I, I still remember I think that's still one of like the scariest moments I, I just remember being very aware of myself and my body and just telling myself like it'll be over soon 
you just have to do it and then it'll be fine. But never having that moment of it's over, it's just, it just keeps going. But I'm so glad that I did it because it was a very scary experience, but I, I did live. Like I'm not doing <laughs> it. But I had to, I, I had to write the speech uh, and I chose, I, I did it a couple times, but one of the ones that I did that particular time was uh, Joan of Arc. So I had to do the research, I had to write the speech in French, and then I had to perform it um, and practice it and perform it a couple different times. And then at the end, so you did it, did it in front of, uh, you had, we had to drive to town. We did it in front of a bunch of other uh, like people who were my peers, other students, but three teachers who were the judges. And then they would ask you questions about your topic in French, and you had to answer in French. Uh, so I don't really remember that part at all. I just remember like just delivering the speech and being like so unbelievably nervous. But but I did it. I'm nervous I just listening that. to the yeah. things you had to do there. This is bringing me back to like speech arts when we used to recite poems in like middle school to judges. Did you have that? We had in my grade five, six class, Miss Stanger and Mr. Kellett. It was a five, six split. We had to memorize a poem a week, every week, and perform it to both classes every week. Every kid. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. And was that the whole class? The whole class would do it. So one day, like one whole morning would be every week would be the kids all reciting poems that to each other. That smells like the memorized. teacher wanting to get out of work. No, but as, <laughs> as a teacher, I can see that the ability to memorize things, right? Yeah. Like they were really giving us a practice. We could pick anything we wanted. But, and I, I, I love so much that they asked us to do this. I hated it at the time. Like I was so resentful and annoyed that I had to find a new thing every week and memorize it. But the ability to get up in front of a group of, and when you're in middle school, like, you know, all your bullies are there too. And be able to say that poem, right? You're trying to pick something that represents you a little bit, or maybe it's just a joke or whatever it is, but you'd have to say it, get up in front of those people all the time, every time. And they all had to do it too. It was a great equalizer in a, uh, in the school. We are friends, you and I, friends. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. And now for a smoke. I wanted to ask, like, I don't, probably not as much you, but Claire, um, I noticed since doing like comic conventions and having to sell stuff, point of sale to all these people and meet all these people, like prior to conventions, I feel like I was a lot more introverted. And since doing all these trade shows, just being able to to speak to random strangers and and carry on conversations like the anxiety and the nervousness of of just strain talking to strangers all the time has gone away and i just wanted to like yeah see what your thoughts on on that has been uh i think i think for me it i'm tapping into something that was instilled in me at a younger age and and i think that i did have a little bit of anxiety um a bit at the beginning, but there were two things that helped, that kind of came together to to make me want to do the conventions and make me not like that nervous about them. One of them is the music lessons, uh, performing in front of people. Uh, we would like my sister and I. We were basically a sister act. We play the fiddle, and afterwards, 
people would come up to us and talk to us and they were strangers to us, but usually my mom would know them. Um, but we had to learn as, you know, 12, 13, 14 year olds to engage in small talk with, you know, 50 and 60 year olds, uh, which was something that I did not really enjoy because I was like, why are you <laughs> like, like, thank you for the compliment. Thank you for enjoying the performance. But like, I like I just want to go home now <laughs> was, was my kind of reaction. But we still had to learn to converse with the strangers. And the second thing that helped me was that um, my dad is a entrepreneur. And when I was little, he would go to um, the, the, the Sunday markets, which in Nova Scotia, he would uh, have a table. He would take his furniture that he made and he would go sell it. And sometimes I would go with him. And I would help him sell the furniture. So I was, I don't know, seven or eight. Uh, and I wouldn't go every time, but I learned to talk. I also learned to talk to strangers and sell them this piece of furniture and explain what it was and accept money from them. And so that that also was an experience that I was like, I think I want to, like, I like selling things. Like, I want to be an entrepreneur. So those two things combined made me like not quite as nervous. Um, I think certain experiences have happened at conventions that have made, definitely made me more resilient to dealing with people. Like I've just dealt with a lot of different kinds of people. So you kind of learn how to handle different situations better. So I think that definitely helped my anxiety. But on a base level, I wasn't, I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll go to Winnipeg and try KeyCon. Like, Never been to Winnipeg before, but yeah, I'll do it. Into so. the big city, Justin. Big she was fearless. City. So I often say to people that I am an introvert by nature and an extrovert mm -hmm. by training. And that training mm -hmm. began at a very young age with me when my parents and I would go out to a restaurant. I don't know why my sister is never in these memories. She, was a, she had escaped into some extracurricular activity. We would be out mm -hmm. at a restaurant, and I would just wanted to read my book or draw quietly in the corner of the booth. My dad would introduce me to the server, who I now realize I'm like, you know, nine, maybe eight or nine. And this server, in my mind, was like an old lady, but really she was probably like in her 20s, right? And he would introduce me to this person and try to arrange a date as a way to embarrass me out of my little corner. And I mean, it sounds really awful, but he would say like, you know, hey, what are you, you know, hi. What do you do? You know, what are you studying? She'd be like, oh, you know, I'm studying literature. Oh, well, my son really likes reading. You know, maybe you guys would have a lot in common, you know, whatever. And I would be mortified by this exchange, like just absolutely wanted to crawl under the table. But after a hundred times of this, <laughs> I started just looking at the person being like, yeah, yeah. What kind of books do you like to read? I'm reading Watership Down right now. Right. And they'd be like, oh, well, I read that. And suddenly I'd be having this conversation, like you said, with an adult person. Right based on a shared interest. And I realized that, you know, my dad's joke was making it like this date setup. But what he was really doing was saying like, here's a person that you don't know here. And talking to people is okay and easy. Um, right. Because he saw the likelihood of his son just disappearing into a hole of books and drawing without ever wanting to speak to another human. I think ever again right. would have been just fine with me at that age. <laughs> so uh, I I think that would have. Do you think that would have turned out differently if you were uh, a girl and not a boy? Um, well, I know from my sister's point of view that he did that with all of them. So okay. I don't know if it turned out differently. We could bring them on the podcast. 
Um, <laughs> I would like that. Yeah, you would like that. Oh, they have some stories. They have some stories. Let's not tell this. Because my my grandfather tried to do that to me once. Yeah. Too, except I was uh, like twenty years old, like nineteen twenty, and uh, we went to a restaurant, and that that's kind of an unusual occurrence uh, that we would all go to a restaurant. So my grandparents, my aunt, my mom, and me, all at a restaurant together, and it was like the keg, and the server comes over. And he's, he, w- he would have been around my age, but maybe a couple years older. And it comes out in conversation that uh, he's an Olympic rower. And the Olympics were happening at the time. They were going on in China or, or about to happen. And he was going to go to China and compete. And so my grandfather was like, oh, well, you know, Claire here, like she's a budding musical star and, and writer and maybe you should like How old were you? talk Wait, to her. How old were and you? both of us were so mortified and embarrassed that the waiter did not even look at me for the rest of the time. See, my, the rest of the meal. my embarrassment training ended as soon as I was like 12 or 13. It, it, once you were at like that age where you could actually date a person, you know, there was definitely didn't happen anymore. I just laid down the line. I was like, Dad, you got to stop this. This is getting like really inappropriate at this point. Uh, once I had my, but when I was little, like, and my, you know, my oldest son is at the same age now. And rather than try and hook him up with the people that we meet in, you know, <laughs> the world, I will, however, try to train. He's also very introvert. Um, so I see passing that torch. I try to get him to talk to people and figure out like, you know, state an interest and see if you have a shared interest. And then if you do, talk about those things. So, right. right? I don't know. Did you have your parents embarrass you like that? Oh, Justin? yeah. Yeah? Okay. I don't have any particular stories. And no. I feel like, so the last couple of weeks, I've had my sister came into town and Gregory shared a hotel room with my my parents and myself in New York. You've gotten way too many. I recorded like, some embarrassing stories you that your mom told. Too many embarrassing stories. So we're gonna just pump the brakes on embarrassing Justin stories for a while. <laughs> we'll gather. Maybe what we should do is record a few embarrassing stories on both sides of the fence, and then we'll do an episode of just people telling embarrassing stories about us. It's an interesting thing when you consider the Earth people who can think are so frightened by those who cannot. The dead. Okay, so we have a little bit of time left, Claire, and I want to talk to you about something that we brought you into our lives for. Dun, dun, dun. Ladies and gentlemen, Claire is going to give you a brief synopsis, I'll say that word correctly, uh, of her job as a writer and who she writes for and why she writes those things. And then we'll tell you what she's going to do for us. In French. Oh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Uh, I write young adult science fiction and fantasy and sometimes horror books. Uh, my press is Fairy Ink Press, and that's primarily where I publish out of. And I have seven books currently. I do one book a year. Um, do you want me to talk about what I'm going to do for you? Or? Yes. Yeah. Why don't you tell our dear listeners what the heck we asked you to do? How did that even happen? I forget. How now. did that happen? It's, How did it happen? Yeah, it's too late Gregory, now. We signed you, a contract. You came up to me at uh, Edmonton Expo like two years ago, and you're like, "I want you to do a project with us." And I was like, 
okay. <laughs> That's how it happened. It was so majestic. What a wonderful, inspiring story that is. Um, You're probably like on uh, your so- way to the bathroom or something. <laughs> I think you were there too, Justin, maybe. <laughs> oh my God. You were there at one point. <laughs> well, we, yeah. So why don't you tell them what we did ask, what we did settle on doing. Okay. So I am going to write a novel in the Cassie and Tonk universe uh, with uh, newer characters. And uh, it's going to be about two girls and they are on a boat and one of them discovers a broken robot and they become friends uh, but something terrible is brewing and uh, they have to stop it is basically a very short synopsis without revealing any, you know, cool plot points, okay. I guess. So for those people who are maybe listening and saying, like, why would we do that? We already write and illustrate our own books in that universe. I'll give you a little feedback um, our readers, we were really surprised by Cassie and Tonk's connection to readership. And then they grew up. And they are now of an age that are reading the kinds of books that Claire writes. And rather than us try to create something that we're not good at, we went looking for someone who is good at writing and creating projects in that space. And we saw Claire doing it. And what it really, I was telling Justin about this when we went for a walk for coffee this morning, that I saw your readers responding to your work, coming up to the table, being super excited about the next book in the series, being really, you know, not just complimentary, but like digging down, like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens to this character and that character and what's going to happen. And your own enthusiasm reflected back at them like oh my gosh just wait till you find out what happens here and i was just so impressed by that level of uh you know it's the thing you look for as a creative person you want people to be excited about what they're making Mm -hmm. and excited with the people who also are connecting to it that fire yeah we wanted that fire so i thought since we we're just old men now and our fire has (laughs) gone out we should find somebody who still has that spark I'm eternally young. <laughs> now that we're all used up. Huh? Now that we're all used up, <laughs> we are uh, finding others to do it. But it also, for us, is an experiment because we don't know if those readers are out there. We don't know for sure whether or not we'll connect with them. So we figured we'll make that your problem. <laughs> we're kind Great. Of, we're pretending to be like a bigger deal than we are as well. Like when Marvel does a movie they do a movie they do a graphic novel they do kids books then they do toys and they do Mm -hmm. you know it's not just one thing it's a whole branding package of products so if we just put our business hats on it makes sense for us to try it Mm -hmm. Uh, when we put our creative hats back on we you know thought claire you just had the right kind of fire um and then also you had the right pedigree people that we knew and respected also uh, really respected your work ethic and the stuff that you were doing. So that kind of Thanks. closed the loop for us. <laughs> now, that's good. Yeah. Practically, for the people out there who are listening about how we did that, even though we liked each other, we made a contract first. Isn't that yes. right? You want to talk about that? You can be open about your contract stuff. Uh, sure. So um, I don't think I wrote this contract, I think Sam did. But uh, we had some we had some discussion back and forth 
Um, and then I don't really if there, know if there's too much I can say about it. I, I think I remember our conversation, Greg. Um, I think I just had this feeling, and I think you did too, we both wanted to be fair. Yeah. Um, and we both like really have a lot of mutual respect. And so uh, I, I knew that you weren't out to get me and that <laughs> even <laughs> and that we would try and and think of everything to put in the contract so that all the bases were covered and I think like remembering the contract I think we did cover a lot of bases and even if there's a base in there that we have forgotten like I'm pretty sure that we all like each other enough that we can talk about it and have a conversation and then resolve an issue. And I think I think what you said is really important that like we like we like each other. We have a mutual like respect and 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 I think that's very important to work with people who share similar values to you. Like I think if any I mean there's probably a scenario where somebody else could have asked me to do something like this and like I may have said no if they if I didn't like them like I wouldn't do it if right. I didn't like them if they didn't share the values if I didn't know what their worth work ethic was and I think we all have a similar we're all on the same page so for the say. well thanks for that for the sake of the dear listener I'll say that a practical way of approaching a contract scenario like this what we did was we laid out in in just basic language what we thought was fair um, to the person who doesn't know about book contracts typically a regular publisher will give you 10% of whatever the book is going to make and they're going to keep the rights to every other thing and maybe give you a slight percentage of those things if you like sell a movie deal or some of those things. But their publishing contracts are by and large predatory on the creative side. And so you and I have been in self-publishing long enough to know that and said, you know, like if we're going to work together, we're going to remove that. So we create a scenario where we said, well, we could pay you in advance to do the book and some royalties after. We could pay you in advance of the book, let you share some of the creative IP. We could let you buy into the print run. Like we just laid out all the ways in which a book could generate revenue and said, how do you want to split that? Right. And I think it's different too with what we're doing because in the regular publishing world, like you kind of have a very, very small window to make the book big. And while I think that's still kind of true in one respect, but because we do conventions all the time, it's new to somebody somewhere. You have like a year and so a half can, versus three months. Yeah. This is the normal window. Yeah. 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 So we can we can keep promoting the book for like a super long time and it's still going to be good. We're still going to make money on it, hopefully. <laughs> I'm going to jump in here with a question. Uh, so who, once this book is published, who is going to be selling it at whose table? Will you all of you sell it at your tables? Or how does I that think work? we're all selling it, yeah. right? Yeah, we're all going to sell it. And we're also right now talking to some distributors about like our larger catalog of work. And in our, like the long-term strategy is to have a big enough catalog of work that a distributor will say, hey, everything that you guys are doing, we can also reach another market outside of conventions. Talking to those distributors and explaining to them that we're going to do sell-through direct first, some distributors say, no, that eats the market, and other ones understand, no, that builds the market. So depending on which side of that opinion you're on, those are the distributors that we're looking to find and expand. Um, the old way of doing things clearly isn't working, or there wouldn't be so many 
upstarts joining the fray. <laughs> like fairy ink press. Yes. Yeah. Carving your way out. Yeah. Um, but it's also about um, leveraging your own labor for yourself, right? If you're going to work that hard on something, you should probably reap some of those rewards. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we also aren't in a position where we could promise some national campaign, you know, like there is a point in which. But we are kind of doing it national campaign this book is yeah, going to be going we i guess it's are. going to visit 30 cities yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay scratch that claire we're going to revisit your contract <laughs> no so um what this is for the for the listener this is what we call hybrid publishing where all of the parties involved have a say at the table and are trying to figure out a way to bring a project like deep down Claire still had to send us an outline that we liked. She had to give us a concept that we thought was a good one. But from our perspective, we also haven't asked too many questions. Is that, yeah. would you say that's true? I would say you've been pretty hands off, uh, which can be good because like I have had a very busy year. And so I've had to change my schedule a lot of different times. And I have to be uh, flexible for a lot of the other things that I do. Um, so like basically as long as the book gets done, it's fine. Yeah. That's kind of how we feel about it too. And you know, other people will say that a really rigid schedule is good to hit milestones. And that's true if, uh, all things are equal, but in all three of our lives, we all live, we're all like in different cities all the time and we're all doing lots of stuff and we have to be really flexible with our schedules. So one of the things that I told Claire when we started was we're not going to check in a lot unless you want us to. So tell us now and be honest whether you want us to be checking in and encouraging you and being cheerleaders or you just want us to like get the hell out of your way while you make a book. Um, I think at this point I'm still fine with the hands off. Um, I think there might come a point where I will tell you, please be my cheerleader, but I don't think we're at that point yet. And we have a third party editor too. Mm -hmm. So we have an objective person who will come and look at the book and not, and, and fight for the book rather than for Claire's perspective or our perspective. They'll just look at it and say, Hey, this is a better story if, right? Mm -hmm. So totally impartial. Frank. Everything in order? Yes. Thank you, Brad. One of the things that we did also for the dear listener, which is maybe useful to know, we provided a rough story Bible, like a outline of the world and some general themes. Yeah. Yeah. Just so that Claire could look at the ingredients in general of Mm -hmm. the story world. But then we said, you know, make up what you want. Because, yeah, if you're going to write like a Bernstein Bears book, you can't be writing a story that would never happen in the Berenstain Bears universe right. kind of thing. You yeah. need to know the rules of the world. It's an important thing to put together for any big project or big world building project like this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, I, 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 I remember I've had a couple conversations with Justin about some of the world building. So, like, maybe this is presumptuous of me to say. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I think that the novel will still... I'm still evolving maybe some of your concepts too and uh, just kind of building on what you gave me and setting and writing some of the things that maybe you've only put in your drawing or I don't know I feel like I'm building on what you've given me and I want to like contribute to what you've already given me if that makes sense that's very wordy definitely yeah because like a lot of the questions you asked uh, and the conversations we had it was stuff I'd never really considered 
because Cassian Tonk is a fairly contained story, and the next two books uh, that we have planned on our end build the world a little bit, but they they kind of keep it pretty tight to to yeah, few characters in a, a smaller environment. And you're looking at at much more of the world than than I had been looking at. Well, in young adult fiction, like kind of the core concept is like the the teenager has to figure out who they are in their world. So it is like very important to know like what the world is and what their impact is going to be. And so that's why I ask those questions because they're like very important to this other level of of writing. I just had an epiphany. It's not mm-hmm. that bold or profound, but what you just said about uh, young adult fiction being about finding yourself in the world, um, this has been what our conversation has been about. And I think we, bo- we all know that young adult fiction is read widely by adults, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe even in some sectors more by adults than by young adults. Do you think it's because so many people are still looking for themselves like they still they're they you know they're in their 30s 40s maybe their 50s and they're like hey shit n- nobody <laughs> right this isn't the world that was promised me i'm still looking for things did all those people not question the line they just traveled down it yeah. and ended up at the end i think that's part of it i think part of the appeal of young adult fiction is the escape aspect and returning to those very core strong emotions like first kiss first love first day of school, first this and that, and just like the raw emotion. Um, I think that's a big appeal because maybe they want to escape whatever is going on in their own life and just return to that. To the beginning points. Interesting. Well, what I'm uh, really fascinated to find out in the book that you're writing for us is what that world looks like on the broader page. You know, like when you work in graphic novels, it's very much about here's the image, here's the beat, here's the next plot movement. And then the words the characters are saying, you know, add another layer. But in uh, prose, you can dig so much into a character's point of view, so much more deeply. Like there are more, there's going to be more words in the first chapter of your book than are in, Cassian Tonk, Rust and Water, and Dragon Nanny combined, likely. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Right? And so the, the breadth and width of that story I'm really looking forward to. So don't, don't, don't wreck it. <laughs> don't okay, I'll try it. not. <laughs> what if, okay, we should have this talk on the air. What if it's bad? What do we do? What if you, uh, what if the ingredients we, we gave then you? Then we delay release. <laughs> that's it? Did we just delay? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like what if like, what if down the road you ask you show us your draft and then we meddle too much in the draft and then it loses that core element and then our book is broken. What do we do? Um then we fix it. How are you going to fix it? Have you been in that position before? No, no, let's let's have a really big epic falling out and oh. just glare oh, no. at each other from across <laughs> the conventions like from then on. We'll have a very public breakup yeah. on Twitter and like what <laughs> I <laughs> I think uh, I think I would advocate very strongly if there was something that I thought should be in there. I would make my argument to you and the editor. And the editor, I think, is uh, YA. Like, she edits YA. So I think she would probably... I don't want to say she'd side with me. Oh, but whoa, I, <laughs> whoa. I see what's happening but I here. Think, 
I think she could be like she would understand where I'm coming from, but I think having worked with you, she'd also understand your point of view, and then she would be able to help us come to a uh, fair outcome. Right. Well, I feel like one of the things in the like windy path that brought us here uh, to be able to say to you like do this and let's we'll take our hands off the wheel is that we've been developing Cassie and Tonk as an animation mi- pitch too, and so working with the director there and working with the team there about stripping away what isn't core. Right, has been a sort of a fun. Um, well, fun, but also challenge. Yeah. Would you say like, what parts are we allowed to touch and what parts aren't we allowed to touch? We've been through that already. So when we got to you, we're like, hey, let's just let's give her all the freedom we wished we had. <laughs> and I think it's a little different too because uh, the animation, like they're doing Cassie and Tonk, like actual Cassie and Tonk, whereas I'm doing like it's the same world but it's different people. So it's a little more removed. I think I maybe have a little even more freedom because I can just, you know, develop characters. And as long as they make sense within the world that you have provided, then it's probably going to be fine. Whereas they're taking actual people that you have made and kind of already molded and they're creating a animated version. I think that they have to be a little more strict in adhering to uh, your wishes, right? I think, mm. Yeah, I mean, we're both humming. I think the flip is we're the ones that had to be more flexible because of the structures required for animation. Mm. You can't just come in, stomp around and say, I have to have it my way, right? Because right. there's a team of people that has to do it a certain certain way. Is that, what did you say about that, Justin? Yeah. I've I've been thinking about how kind of like this all started as a sketch of a robot and then the animation came in and they were like, you have to be able to explain how it works and how the joints connect and like, you know, you have to be able to like take it apart and and make it work properly. And and then with you, Claire, as well, like we had an idea for a short story and now we have to kind of like explain like this entire world around that short story. And it's, so it's yeah, what started off as simple things. Now you have to rationale like everything around it. And it's been kind of, it's been really neat. But that's, but that's just writing. Yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's just writing. I mean, for me, that's what I do all the time. So I guess that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation that has ranged widely on the twisting path to the end of our episode. So this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been here with Claire Marshall. You can check out uh, her website. She has an excellent professional website, as well as her own podcast, Business BFFs. You can listen to that. Um, join the fight and make comics. All right, books. Mm-hmm.